Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have an interview with Susan Lee Johnson. Professor Johnson holds the inaugural Harry Reid Endowed Chair for the History of the Intermountain West. In 2020, Johnson was named President-Elect of the Western History Association. A historian of the Western North America and its borderlands, Johnson specializes in the study of gender, of race, ethnicity, and of the indigenous, and desire and embodiment. Johnson works primarily in the 19th and 20th century, but teaches and takes interest in the 17th and 18th centuries as well. Johnson's scholarship has focused on relations of power in the North American West, both as a place of lived experience and as an imagined place, exploring these themes in three book projects. First, writing Kit Carson, most recently, Roaring Camp, and a new project tentatively titled The Trail the Slaves Made, a place-based history of how Santa Fe Trail connected slaveries and emancipations in the 19th century North America. Chattel slavery and its demise in the East and in the West, captive taking and coerced labor which died a different death. Our conversation wandered from the gold rush to Kit Carson and to our favorite Western films. Let's go meet Professor Johnson. When we think about um, the gold rush, um, we often think about it through a nationalist lens. Um, We're thinking about the eastern half of the United States getting big eyes for riches and wealth in the West. Um, But the gold rush was also an international event. Um, And it wasn't just primarily the, the object, but there were also forces that were pushing people towards California. So what were, what were some of those forces pushing people uh, as well as, you know, in addition to the forces that were pulling? Um, and what were some of the commonalities of those people that came? Sure. Um, I mean, that's such an important point. I mean, it uh, obviously is an event in U.S. national history, but to my eye, it is maybe even more importantly, an international event. Now, because uh, the United States had just acquired California, really almost simultaneous to the discovery of gold uh, through the uh, Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that ended the US-Mexico War, a majority, not a huge majority, but a majority of the uh, immigrants to to the California uh, gold rush through the Sierra Nevada foothills were from the east, or you know what we now think of as as the Midwest. But even those migrants were quite diverse. There were African Americans, both enslaved and free. There were indigenous peoples from other parts of the United States. Uh, but um, you know, at least a third of those who came came from farther afield. Now, the very first uh, people who headed, who weren't, uh, you know, native to the Sierra Nevada foothills, uh, the first people who came, of course, were Californios, because California had just yesterday been part of, uh, part of Mexico. And then Mexicans came north uh, from Sonora, but already uh, California was connected to other Pacific pace, uh, places through trade. So pretty soon folks were coming 
uh, north from Chile, uh, from Hawaii, and eventually from, um, from China as well, and up to maybe, I don't know, 25,000 Gold Rush part participants came from China. Almost as many came from France. So this was really a, a global event. And I think what ties all of these migrants together is the market revolution of the 19th century. Um, huge economic changes, new, um, new modes of production, uh, uh, newly kind of commercialized forms of agriculture that um, you know, put a, a stress on the land and the productivity of the land and the, even the availability of land. Uh, so people in all different parts of the world were facing these challenges and these economic changes and to suddenly learn of gold in the ground, money in the ground that you can just reach down and pick up um, sounded good to a, a wide variety of people around, around the world. Now, of course, uh, those who were indigenous to this area bore the brunt of, of all that migration. Um, so in the area I study, uh, California's southern mines, so the area that now constitutes uh, Amador, Calaveras, Tuolumne, and Mariposa County, most of those indigenous people were Miwoks or else people who had escaped from the California missions and joined upcountry bands like that. So in the southern mines, you know, the indigenous population on the eve of the gold rush was maybe six or 7,000 people. And within a decade, that population was 60 to 70,000. So you can imagine, you know, what that meant for, uh, for the first residents of this area. Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm, I was, you know, racking my brain before we talked, trying to think of another historical moment where so many people from so many different cultures divert or converged into one place. And I, I, I know that, you know, we've had things like the Silk Road, we've had, you know, like in the Italian Renaissance, there were important port cities, but it, it does not seem like there was some, uh, another historical event that quite has this a gravitational pull before? Can you think of something? Or that at least that drew people so quickly from such a wide variety of places. I mean, if you, I mean, all trade itself, you know, starting whatever, and maybe the 15th century is pulling people in all different directions and people are mixing in the Pacific and the Atlantic and, um, but there is something unique, I think, about the discovery of gold that, um, especially at that economic moment in, you know, this moment of the market revolution, uh, it just it, it drew people so quickly in the matter of a decade. I mean, generally a gold rush lasts about a decade and mm -hmm. California wasn't the first one. There was an, an one in Georgia earlier, but it was certainly the biggest one. And then of course it was followed by uh, rushes in almost every Western state and territory in the decades thereafter. Yeah, it's such a such an interesting and unique moment. And I, I often like to play, you know, I'm uh, I like the Quentin Tarantino playing alternative history games sometimes and thinking about how California would have developed more naturally without the gold rush is kind of an interesting thing to think about. You know, I wonder, 
if the Bay Area would have had the prominence it had, had not this giant kind of moment happened. You know, I mean, I just don't know. It's hard to say. Certainly not, and certainly not that that quickly um, at at all. Um, And I, I just think, you know, I don't know. California could have ended up looking more like, uh, you know, New Mexico, uh, another place with a large Spanish-Mexican population. But if there wasn't that draw to bring so many newcomers so quickly, um, you know, it and, and certainly in a place like New Mexico, Spanish-Mexican power, Hispano power, really continued much longer than it did, and arguably, uh, you know, is still operative in New Mexico in a way uh, that's quite different than what happened in California in the 19th century. So let's uh, let's talk about your book. Um, your book on the gold rush was very important to me. I mean, it's one of my favorite books on the gold rush. Um, and I've read quite a few. And you. I, um, you know, I'd, I'd known some things about Joaquin Marietta before. I mean, I think just living in the Central Valley, you kind of like the name is tossed around. Um, but I was surprised when I opened your book to see the kind of the introduction about, you know, I, wa- I want to use, you know, we're, we're, our society is advancing in terms of pronouns. I think I should use them because there's multiple Joaquin Mariettas, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> they're, yes, they're a different reason to use them. but Yeah, yes. different reason, yes. the plural reason. Right. Um, so why, why did you choose to start with him? And why, why do you see him as kind of a central piece in order to understand the gold rush from a kind of a, almost a sociological perspective in some uh-huh. ways? Well, you know, your your reaction to it is exactly what I was trying to kind of provoke in readers, because I think, you know, when I wrote, was working on this at the end of the 20th century, um, a lot of people still had a kind of stock image of the gold rush as, you know, populated by kind of scruffy white guys in need of a bath and a shave. Um, yes, um, <laughs> to, to interrupt, I don't know if you've seen, uh, I forget the name of it, but uh, the Coen brothers did some Netflix show with these different vignettes of the West. And there's this yes. the little vignette with the gold, the guy digging gold in the beautiful valley, and then he gets shot in the end. That's kind of what I think most of us picture. Right, and I mean, that's not a false image, but it's a very incomplete image. So I wanted to start by kind of jolting the reader into thinking of this event as, you know, a, a circumstance where Mexican families from Sonora would pick up and, you know, move north and, uh, you know, try to seek their fortune. Um, but of course, when they do that, when the Murrieta family does that, uh, they find themselves entangled in, you know, racial and ethnic violence. Um, and uh, Joaquin Murrieta is, you know, hunted down by basically a, a militia. Um, and yes, you're right, we don't know was there only one. I think there was, a, a, it's kind of like the historical Jesus. I think there was a historical Joaquin Murrieta, um, but I also think there was a lot of, you uh, what we now call racial profiling. And, you know, many Mexican men seem to be Joaquin. Um, So that was one reason, to just kind of jar people. Another reason is that um, that that pursuit 
and, and murder of Joaquin Murrieta happened in 1853. So gold was discovered in 1848. By 1858, you know, really the gold rush is playing out and uh, people are starting to look for gold in other places, uh, British Columbia, uh, Nevada, Colorado, what have you. So this event happens right in the middle. So I thought it was a so sort of a, a, a narrative hook for the reader, like to draw the reader in, to say, well, what came before that led to this moment and what, ha what happened afterwards? And I do think that kind of midpoint of the California gold rush, especially in the Southern mines, that area that I study, is the moment when white Americans begin to kind of establish dominance in, in the mines um, and becomes harder and harder for Mexicans, Chileans, Chinese, even Europeans such as French to, uh, to make their way in, um, in the gold rush. Um, and finally, you know, you said uh, growing up in California, it's a name that you heard maybe you didn't know a lot about Joaquin Murrieta. Um, I certainly had never heard of him until I, I think I read some Chicano history book when I was working on my master's. And, and yet what I learned is that, you know, Joaquin Murrieta was sort of a folk hero in some Chicano communities. Um, and so it, kind of a Robin Hood figure kind of, you know, stealing from the rich Anglos and giving to the poor Mexicans. And so I wanted readers to think about why do some memories of the gold rush, some stories get preserved in some communities and not in others? And why do some stories, some images of the gold rush sort of uh, have such staying power, that kind of scruffy white guy, you know, in need of a bath. Um, why is that the first image that comes to mind instead of Joaquin Morietta or his, um, you know, or his sp spouse, Rosa? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, there's this kind of mythologizing that happens. And then, you know, there's the different Californias, right? There's the Central Valley, there's the Bay Area, there's Southern California, there's different Californias politically. There's, you know, there's all these distinct communities that make make mythologizing interesting. And I, I, I do want to talk about this kind of myth. Um, so uh, before, before this episode airs, um, there have been an episode with H.W. Brands where we talked about the myth of the gold rush. Um, and he ties a lot of it to this kind of Silicon Valley strike it rich mythology that has stuck with California. And that's, that's certainly a part of the gold rush, but then there's another part, right? There's right. a part of ethnic strife. There's a part of land, uh, conquest, uh, land rights. There's an immigration element to, to, um, so I understand why people cling to the former myth of strike it rich because that kind of, you know, that's California's air. You know, I mean, when you when you watch the show Mad Men, when Don Draper comes to the West to California, everything shines as if it's made right. of gold, um, and that's that's an image that we foster for reason. It's part of our marketing. At the same time, I would say ethnic strife probably is more central to California history than a strike at rich myth, because it follows us through. I mean, all you have to do is look at, you know 
the Black Panther movement emerging in Oakland or the Braceros in Central California, the Watts riots. I mean, this has been something that's made up California history from the beginning, but it's not really seen as connected to the gold rush is the point I'm trying to make. Right. Would you agree? Well, I absolutely agree. And I, I would say it's just hard. I understand that way of thinking about the gold rush that it, um, you know, establishes this California is this place where you can get rich quick, but I, it's really hard historically to draw a straight line between the gold rush and 20th and 21st century venture capitalism. I just, <laughs> so much intervenes, um, you know, the market revolution, the beginnings of the industrial re revolution, the, the rise of a service oriented economy. Um, there, there's, it, it, there's no direct, you, you, you can't just go from the gold rush to Goldman Sachs. Um, right. There's, right. there's so much in between and it, it's, yeah. So for me, the diversity of the gold rush and the um, incidents of, of dispossession and exploitation and um, just the intermixing of peoples and cultures, that I think you can draw a pretty direct line. And especially the area that I studied, the, the Southern Mines, that was the more diverse of the areas. So just for uh, your listeners, benefit, you know, there were three main gold mining areas, the southern mines that I've talked about and the, the kind of uh, area of the foothills tributary to the San Joaquin River, the northern mines, the, the area of the foothills tributary to the Sacramento River, and then a third area way up north they call the Shasta Trinity diggings. And the southern mines of those three areas was by far the more, uh, the most diverse. So many more Mexicans, many more Chileans, many more French people. It, for Chinese, they were spread pretty much in all three of those areas. Um, and actually more of the African Americans who ended up in the gold country ended up in the southern mines for, for complicated reasons. So um, to me, the southern mines looks so much more like what California looks like now. And it seems so much more directly connected. Um, and that, I guess, is, is part of what I was trying to do uh, in that book, is, is look for some of the deep roots of California's uh, diversity and its inequities. Yeah, and it's, it's not that I'm just, you know, I, I, I get this a lot from people, especially because I'm in a more conservative part of California. When historians focus on negative elements of history, it can be kind of seen as like, well, you know, uh, it's this discourse that they associate with kind of uh, college professors or something. It's just a history of inequities. But the, the truth is, is that most, for most of the history, it's been pretty triumphalist in our uh, approach to understanding things. And we're just trying to create some parity here, um, understanding the positive things. You know, this drove a lot of people, created a very diverse state. But also there's a history of inequity as well. And so that it's it's I think it's it's a balancing act. And that's that's what I'm trying to do. And I think that's what a lot of good scholars are trying to do as well, is, is just tell the story as accurately as we have it. Um so I uh, I do want to transition to talking about Kit Carson. Um so Kit Carson is one of those interesting, speaking of mythologies, he's one of those interesting mythological characters because 
he seems to like just appear at important moments all the time. <laughs> you know, he just, uh, we were just uh, kind of going through um, the Mexican-American War in California, which I just call the short history of tiny skirmishes. Um, <laughs> and Kit Carson just shows up at the end uh, as part of a, you know, a, a kind of train of soldiers uh, coming from the East. And it's, uh, you know, he's, He's like that, and he's such an interesting character. Can you talk a little bit about who Kit Carson was and then how you see his role in the grand westward expansion? Right, so that moment when he uh, comes to California in the 1840s, you know, at the time of the war, he is acting as a scout and a guide for John C. Fremont, who is, a, a, you know, a, a U.S. Army explorer. Um, but that moment, and, and uh, that's really how Carson became famous through his association with John C. Fremont, because he served as guide or scout on three of his four West, Western expeditions. So that's kind of maybe midway in his adult life. He was born uh, in Kentucky, but grew up in Missouri, grew up in a white slaveholding family. Um, was apprenticed to a, a saddle maker and uh, didn't like it much and ran off, ran down the, followed the Santa Fe Trail to New Mexico in uh, 18, 1826. He was active in the fur trade, so he was a fur trapper, a buffalo hunter, um, and then, uh, you know, went on to, to serve as a guide and a scout for John C. Fremont. And that's when he kind of came to the attention of many Americans because of uh, John C. Fremont's writings and also the writings of Jesse Benton Fremont, uh, Fremont's uh, wife. They both loved Kit Carson and they probably the, were the ones who first made him famous. He went on to become an Indian agent in New Mexico for Apache and uh, Ute and Taos Pueblo uh, peoples. Uh, he then was a soldier in the Union uh, in the Union Army during the Civil War, and he's probably most well known, especially for those who uh, uh, don't like him, who hate him, uh, as the soldier who led the expedition that um, basically dispossessed the Navajos of their Four Corners homeland and sent them to kind of bleak reservation lands in eastern New Mexico in. Uh, 1864. They did make their way back, but by the time they made their way back to their homeland, uh, Carson was dead. He died in 1868, I think. So that's the person he was, but even in his lifetime, he not only was he, you know, written about by the Fremonts, but he also became a character in dime novels, cheap fiction that was read um, very popular among like white working class men in the East. So he became a fictionalized character even in his, even in his lifetime. Um, and, you know, after he died, and especially in the late 19th, early 20th century, he sort of rode a rising tide of white supremacy that kind of celebrated these pioneer heroes. And he became one, I argue, of this kind of trio of white male pioneers, so Daniel Boone, Kit Carson, Davy Crockett, who, you know, even today, 
a lot of people can't even tell those guys apart or even know what part of the continent and which right. decades they were they were uh, active in. But they came to kind of stand for uh, that kind of triumphalist narr narrative of uh, you know the white conquest, the U.S. conquest of of the West. So it's very hard now to pull apart the Carson of history, the actual person who lived, and the Carson of myth. And when people react to him, whether they like him or hate him, it's, always, it's not always clear what they're reacting to, the, the actual past or you know, the Kit Carson who came into being first through dime novels and later through movies and TV shows. Yeah, it's interesting. And this might be a, a good moment to talk about kind of the Western genre, because uh, it's an interesting genre. I, I, Before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about how I've been spending some of my pandemic time rewatching old movies. And I rewatched The Searchers for the long time, which I think John Wayne in that movie is a Kit Carson archetype or caricature or whatever you want to call it. Kind of this Confederate, you know, so he's this Confederate soldier, um, you know, not necessarily, we don't know slaveholding or whatever, but basically from a similar origin of Kit Carson and then out in the West and his drive for of racism and revenge propels him to chase these, you know, uh, admittedly the Comanches were, uh, you know, they were harsh people for good reason, um, but chase them, hunt them, kill them. Um, and it's such an interesting history. I I wonder, because I've also been reading uh, some great books that have come out about um, the, the space race in the 60s. And it, it, it feels like that moment was the moment where our frontier would change. But we're still, we're still obsessed with the West. Um, you know, you just watch a show like Westworld, for example. We're still wanting to go back there. We don't want to go to space. I mean, maybe Elon wants to take us to Mars. But, you know, we still want gunslingers and... All this stuff. So, how do you look at kind of that genre of Western history, and why do you think it persists with us? Well, I'm not sure it persists in quite the same way. And I'm thinking of um, films like John Sayles' Lone Star, or this year the big box office, well, I guess nothing's a box office smash. But right. the, the couch smash. smash uh, yeah. Um, First Cow. Have you uh, seen that yet? No, I haven't. Oh, you, you, need to, you need to watch it. I mean, it is, a, it's a kind of a, um, uh, a morality tale about uh, the pursuit of, of riches in, in the West. Um, historically, it's some of it's kind of off, but um, you know, as kind of metaphor or um, a kind of comment on the Western genre, it's a pretty, it's a pretty brilliant, uh, brilliant film. So I do think that, I mean, even at the height of the Hollywood Western in the 1950s and 60s, we see changes. So you know, whereas earlier Westerns tended to be more celebratory, more triumphalist, by the time you get to uh, something like uh, Gary Cooper and High Noon, that's a much darker vision where, you know, he goes off and, uh, you know, to catch a bad guy, but the community basically doesn't support him in that venture. And 
the movie ends with him tossing his sheriff's badge in the dust and just, you know, uh, leaving things. And then, then that brings me then back to something like John Sayles' Lone Star, which begins with a sheriff's, um, uh, you know, a star in the dust um, and tries to excavate a much more complex uh, uh, version of Western history that acknowledges that much of the West was part of Mexico, that at least touches on the presence of indigenous people. So we are still drawn to the West, but I think, you know, filmmakers and, um, other image makers have done some kind of interesting things in the last, you know, 20, 25 years. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's, there's definitely a, it, it, it is a, you know, uni, almost universal transition between the searchers and dances with wolves or even unforgiven. Um, you know, some of those, right. some of those movies in the nineties. And it feels like my favorite movies are the ones in which there's a corrupt sheriff you know, and they got to come in. I mean, obviously that's, you know, some mythologizing too or whatever, but I, I feel like that, that is a, those are the ones that are more palatable, you know, um, because, and they're probably more truthful in some ways. Um, I don't know. It's, it is, it is a hard history and I don't, cause you know, I talk about this stuff with, uh, my dad also loves Westerns and we'll talk uh -huh. about this stuff. And, and, you know, I, I, I think there's, a sense in which we do have to acknowledge that there was a lot of violence between Native Americans and, you know, uh, settlers. But at the end of the day, who was who was showing up where? Um, and I think that's the the kind of the the current that I'm trying to push. I I I'm very curious um, about the inspiration for the book writing Kit Carson. Um, so why did you choose to focus on these two uh, women writers and? Um, how do their images kind of compare with the scholarly discourse on Kit Carson? So when I began this book, I thought I was writing a very different book. I thought I was writing a book about Kit Carson and focusing, I, I just sort of gave you his biography earlier without mentioning anything about his intimate life. But his intimate life is actually really interesting because he first, uh, during his time in the fur trade, married uh, an Arapaho woman who they had a couple of kids. She died kind of young. He then briefly married a Cheyenne woman who didn't like him much, and that didn't that one didn't last long. And then he married into a prominent northern New Mexican family, the Jaramillo family in in Taos. And it occurred to me that you know those marriages, what he was doing was marrying into communities that really still held sway over their own geography of residence. So Cheyenne and Arapaho people were among the most powerful people in the Central Plains in uh, the early and mid uh, 19th century. Hispanos in northern New Mexico still held uh, enormous power at the time he married into the Jaramillo family. And I thought, well, wouldn't you know, take this stock figure, you know, the dime novel figure, look at him as a historical figure and put his intimate relationships into dialogue with everything else he was doing. And that might provide a kind of 
window on the transformation of you know, what was then the Mexican North into the US Southwest. So that's what I thought I was doing. And I happened upon a, a published genealogy of the Carson family and all, two related families, the Bents and the Boggs, also uh, you know, Anglo-American men who came into the West and married into either Spanish, Mexican, or uh, indigenous families. Um, so I found the genealogy, and then I learned that the woman who compiled it, a woman named Quantrill McClung, had left um, all of her papers to the Denver Public Library. And I thought, well, I'll go look at those papers just to see if maybe she turned up some sources that I might not find as easily on my own. And I didn't find any sources like that. But what I found in that collection were about uh, over 300 letters that this woman, Quantrill McClung, the retired librarian, now genealogist, exchanged with a woman named Bernice Blackwelder, who published a, a kind of popular biography of Kit Carson in 1962. And I thought, well, this is so interesting. And what was interesting about their work is that they highlighted Carson's intimate relationships with these women at a time when male scholars, whether academic or amateur historians, really didn't say, they might have noted that he was married, but they don't really make anything of those relationships. Um, and here were two women, you know, working 40, 50 years before I was, and they had noticed those relationships and made something of them. And I thought, well, that will make a nice little article, an article about women historians and male historical subjects. Uh, these women were amateurs, they weren't trained, they didn't have PhDs. Um, relationships between amateur historians and academic historians. But the longer I worked on it, the more it grew. <laughs> and then I thought, well, I'll write a little book. And pretty soon it became my little big book. Um, <laughs> and it, because, you know, it traces their lives as women who wrote about Kit Carson, but it also um, takes up in, in some detail those bigger themes, like women historians writing about male historical subjects, about the relationships between amateur and academic historians at a time when Western history as a field, which had kind of been dominated by amateur historians, say in the 40s and 50s, by the 1960s and 70s, more and more academic historians were doing that work. So they were kind of navigating that. And they were also navigating enormous racial change. So when they started their work on Carson, not all people, but most people thought of him as a pioneer, kind of a frontier hero. By the 1970s, his reputation was, you know, going down the drain. I mean, he had his his you know uh supporters and people who uh tried to uphold his uh his memory but increasingly activists called in uh, especially in communities of color indigenous um uh, uh chicano historians were calling into question um figures like kit carson so these women were also watching that kind of change. And because they lived in different cities and were writing each other letters, they had to kind of express how they thought and how they felt about that. 
So it also became a book about white people navigating racial change over from the 1950s to they both died in the, 19, the 1980s. So it's not so much that, that I thought their works were so important and undervalued, but that their work and their correspondence with one another illuminated some really big issues in the writing of history and in um, changing racial dynamics uh, starting in the 1960s. What do you, how do you see the kind of relationship between amateur historians and academic historians today? Um, you know, obviously, I mean, that's part of the, what the, the, the crux of the book is. And it feels like we have a lot of journalists writing history, mm -hmm. which it's not bad. I mean, they're trained in journalism, so they know how to handle sources, yeah. um, but they also maybe lack the the kind of larger context that an academic historian would have through years of training. Um, but then you have kind of a third category, which I call locals and kooks, um, <laughs> which are people that write, you know, uh, family histories or uh, histories of subjects that they're amateur experts on that just are, you know, maybe maybe they give them to, out of, to a few family or friends, or they might be at the local museum or something in the gift shop, but are not given the same kind of weight just because they don't have the credentials. Um, so what's your, what's your kind of view of the landscape of history writing? Well, I mean, I do think Western history as a field, kind of like Civil War history as a field, has always attracted um, you know, both academics and amateurs. Now, you know, the, the, the language of amateur history is an older language. Now we generally talk about independent scholars who may or may not, they, they may have training, they may have PhDs, but couldn't get a job or don't need a job or, you know, wh whatever. They have a spouse who has a great job and they can't, you know, they can't take a teaching job. So, you know, they yeah. write history on their own. Um, and then, you know, there is that, that sort of category of, of journalists who write history. Um, for, from my perspective, I don't really care who writes the history as long as it is deeply researched and accurate and that it brings to light, for me, the things I... Uh, care most about is, uh, are uh, issues of, of, of power and diversity. Um, you know, I, I don't care who writes the history. I would say journalists generally write better than most academic historians. <laughs> yeah. So there's a reason why people pick up their books um, and make it all the way through in a way they don't all, you know, may not pick up an academic history, or if they do pick it up, may not uh, um, make it all the way through. What I think some history by journalists lack is I, I think journalists do know how to deal with sources, that is true, but they aren't quite as addicted to primary sources the way uh, professional historians are, so they might not go as deep into libraries and archives and courthouses and grandma's attic um, and so I think that's something that, that academic historians bring to the table um, that's, that's very, very important. Um, 
but you know, maybe because I'm a Western historian, I, you know, I tend to welcome whatever kind of interventions people make, and, and it doesn't even have to be books. It can be public history sites, uh, museums, or signage on the highway, or uh, podcasts, or, you know, whatever, whatever people, uh, people are doing. And I think that's true also um, of the, the major organization in our field, the Western History Association, that it's a very welcoming place for academic scholars, but also for public historians, independent scholars. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, we're all connected, right? And, right. you know, hopefully people listening to this are gonna want to transition from this to reading Roaring Camp. I mean, that's the idea, right? Is that um, we're covering, we're skimming the surface um, and provoking people's curiosity is the objective. I would say, I think maybe some historians whose work I really love, but is incredibly dense and hard to read, maybe you should consider co-writing with some journalists um, that yeah. might get their uh, scholarship read by more people. And I think that's something that I, I think could be a future. I, I also do think that, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of great works of maybe in Western history that would be great Netflix series or whatever. Because I, I think the objective here, and, you know, a lot of academics get this, but some don't, is that, you know, the work that we're doing is for the public. You know, we want, we want the public to access it, read it, understand it, and help them become better citizens of the world. And that's the goal. And I also understand that there's this other thing, which is, you know, the scholarship world, and that's important too. Um, I just, I really appreciate uh, people like yourself that are also uh, somewhat public facing and are thinking about the public and writing in such a way that it's accessible and digestible. Because I think there is a, there is a, peop, you know, if this podcast is, is, is any sign of anything, it's that there's a people, there's people out there that want to listen and understand their history. And maybe, you know, we, we love to talk about on this show, the fact that California history is done in fourth grade. Mm -hmm. um, you know, kids are nine years old when right. they're taking California history. Um, they're learning about the mission system uh, when they're prepubescent, which is its own thing. Um, and if that's the last time you can hear about California history, you don't really know California history. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's part of the challenge. Let's, um, let's finish by talking about books. Um, and maybe we'll talk about books and favorite movies as well, Westerns, um, because we were talking about, it. I'd, you know, I mean, there's so many good ones. It's, a, it's hard to even make a list. Um, but let's start with books before we go to movies. Uh, what, are, what are some books on Western history that have been important to you? So I anticipated that question and I was thinking about it and thinking. Um, and what worries me about just kind of listing my, <laughs> my, my favorite Western history books is that I'm the, the president-elect of the Western History Association. Oh, okay. And to choose, you know, two or three or four books when I can easily come up with 20 or 30 or 40 books that have shaped me, you know, as, as a historian. So as I thought about this, I thought, well, what else do I want Western historians or people who are interested in Western history 
to read. And you mentioned earlier that you've been thinking about and uh, poetry and talking to poets. And so I, I actually started thinking about who, about Westerners who have done important writing but aren't necessarily historians. And I came up with the three possibilities. Uh, two are actually California-born um, writers and activists, although I don't think either of them lives in California anymore. I think they both live in New York, and one is an Oklahoman. So the first is the poet Joy Harjo. Ah, uh, uh, yes. From the uh, member of the Muscogee Creek Nation, she's the poet laureate of the United States. Um, She's the first indigenous person to hold that honor held, you know, by people like uh, Robert Penn Warren and uh, Rita Dove. Um, her poetry, and she's also, she's not just a poet, she's also a musician. So if you ever get a chance to see her perform, she will combine spoken word with some of the meanest saxophone playing you can, you can imagine. Um, and she has such a long list of books, but if I had to name one of, of her poetry books, there's one she published in around the same time as Roaring Camp, maybe 2000, called A Map to the Next World, that I go back to over and over again in my teaching, um, just when I want to think about the Western past in a way that that inspires me to write better history. So Joy Harjo is number one. So are the Californians or California born writers, uh, the, the, the next one is a novelist, the novelist Julie Otsuka, who um, I think she grew up, I think she was born in Palo Alto and grew up in Palos Verdes. Um, and she has a couple novels. She writes about Japanese Americans. The first one was called I think it's called When the Emperor Was Divine, and I loved that book. But her second novel, which is called uh, The Buddha in the Attic, is one of the most extraordinary novels I've ever writ written. So the fir her first novel is about the Japanese internment experience. The second one follows picture brides, Japanese picture brides uh, coming to the United States and then follows them uh, through into, into the internment period. But what's so remarkable about this novel is that there are no named characters in it, none. It's like a collective biography of these women. There are individuals that you kind of get to know uh, throughout the book, but it, I don't know how she did that, to create a collective biography where there are individuals but it, there is no central protagonist who you follow through. It's uh, one of the most extraordinary books I've ever read. And you know, it's historical fiction, so uh, yeah. I love it. The third person is not really a, primarily a writer. She's an activist and a filmmaker. Her name is Amber Hollabaugh. She's a, 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 grew up in a working class family, but born in Bakersfield, California. Um, but she is an activist, has been an activist her whole life, working on issues from abortion rights to LGBTQ uh, health disparities, all sorts of things. But she's also published um, 
uh, a number of really wonderful uh, kind of essays and interviews that she's collected into a book that I have to look down here at my notes to get the title right. It's called My Dangerous Desires, A Queer Girl Dreaming Her Way Home. Um, and it's just an extraordinary book. I mean, I, I think she has pushed feminist and LGBTQ communities to confront and address issues of class in a way that few academics have. Um, so if I was gonna tell Western historians to read outside of our field or people who care about Western history to read outside of that field, um, but to connect it to the West in some way, I would point to those, those three writers, Joy Harjo, Julie Otsuka, and Amber Holabaugh. Yeah, there's so much great uh, poetry and uh, general nonfiction to read. And, you know, uh, what, if you're making the case to a historian that they should read more poetry, what, what, <laughs> what's, a, what's a simple case for that? <laughs> well, actually, and one of the things that I have to do as um, president-elect of the Western History Association is I had to so we have an annual conference that happens in October every year. And hopefully by the time my conference comes around in 2022, we'll be meeting in person again. But I had to establish a theme for the conference. And I chose something from one of Joy Harjo's uh, poems. Um, uh, I don't know if I have the title of the poem in my head, but it's a, it's a poem about protocols of place. And so I, I created a, a theme for the conference. Um, it's protocols and poetics of place. To think about the rules that kind of embody a, a place and the people who live there. But I put poetics in there because I get so frustrated at the bad writing in academic history. So I want historians to think about um, you know, not just in, in writing, it might be digital tools, it might be images, it might be sound, but how to bring more art and beauty to, to what we do and to be more conscious of how we put our knowledge out into the world. And um, I think we will reach more people if we are uh, more attentive to poetics. Absolutely. I mean, poetry is like the, the, you know, it's the national language. It's the language of, of people, right? Um, so transitioning from beauty to violence, which is much of the uh, Western films that we have, um, you know, I, this is my favorite and it, this wouldn't, maybe it isn't a Western. You can tell me whether I, I'm, I'm a big Cormac McCarthy fan, like many people are. Um, and I consider No Country for Old Men one of the best Western uh, movies in in kind of this capturing a mood. Um, and so I think there I think there are I think Western films are bigger than just a certain time and a certain region. Um, and we talked a little bit about some of your favorites. Um, what are what if you had a if you had a list? I hate list questions, but if you had a list. Uh, what are your, some of your favorites that would be on that list? Well, No Country for Old Men uh, would be up there. Um, so you consider it a Western film as well? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, 
it's very much about the the consequences of violence and oh there's that one there's that moving line i'm actually thinking about the story now but um where the protagonist is Oh, I don't think I can. I don't think I can reproduce it. But it's yeah. it's about um, looking into the past and um, looking into the future and bringing the past with with us and how the past is always with us. Um, that is a very deep movie, and I, I yeah. Tommy Lee Jones at the end when yeah. he's doing that whole bit. Oh yeah. my gosh! I mean, yeah. you just. I remember when I first watched that movie because I, I hadn't read the book and it just totally startled me. I mean, I just didn't know, <laughs> I walked into that. Uh, I mean, I'd seen Fargo before, so I kind of knew what to expect a little right. bit, but um, right. yeah, I, I do wonder if they, um, and I don't think it's been done. I do wonder if the Blood Meridian will someday find uh, the big mm -hmm. screen. Um, mm -hmm. That would be obviously a hard one to do visually right. and you know, but you know, I—I uh, um, I mean, I've already mentioned some of mine. Lone Star, I really did love. Um, First Cow, um, you know, uh, Sherman Alex Alexi has. There's been a lot of controversy around him in recent years, but I do love the movie Smoke Signals, um, and that um, you know, bringing that indigenous view of of John Wayne. <laughs> when the guys on the bus are, 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 are singing about John Wayne. I mean, I just, um, I, love, I love that movie. I use it uh, a lot in, in teaching, um, so. And we've been focused on a lot of the kind of more, quote, cowboy movies. I mean, there's a whole other genre of prairie movies as well. I mean, Western history is so big and expansive and Western movies are so big and expansive. We probably can't, uh, hope to encapsulate it with a with a few favorites but uh i was just curious because uh no, you know, but there's, I, think I mean there's the, there's the stuff set in the 20th century so brokeback mountain crash i mean that's a great la movie um so um yeah and trans america i think is 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 another one um that um, you know, I don't think you would classify them as Westerns, as part of the Western genre, but they are films set in the West that have um, pretty, some pretty profound things to say about, um, about identity, about inequity, um, about awesome. violence. Yeah. Well, uh, to close, where can uh, people find your books and uh, what's, uh, what's on the, the, you know, to use the Western term, what's on the horizon for you in terms of uh, projects? So Roaring Camp is, you know, it's been out for uh, 20 years, but you can still, you know, find it on, you know, whatever, bookshop.org or Amazon, what, what have you. Um, uh, uh, writing Kit Carson, it was just published in December by the University of North Carolina Press, so it's very accessible and it's um, it's actually reasonably priced, even in hardback, has a lot of great illustrations in it. Um, so, and I'm now working on a book uh, that looks, I, I am finally going back to the 19th century after writing about these 20th century women and I'm interested in how the Santa Fe Trail, which connected Missouri and New Mexico from like the 1820s to the 1870s, how it also 
connected two very different worlds of slavery and coerced labor. So black chattel slavery, the kind of slavery we know the most about in Missouri and points east, but in the borderlands in New Mexico, um, uh, in that area, um, the world of indigenous slavery. So indigenous people trading other indigenous people, um, you know, back and forth, uh, selling indigenous people to Spanish Mexicans. Um, so th this whole world of captivity and coerced labor in the borderlands and the, the Santa Fe Trail literally connected those two worlds. And these unfree laborers, African-American, indigenous um, and others both traveled that trail and crossed it going uh, you know, from north to south and south to north. Um, there's a lot of good old books on the Santa Fe Trail, but no one has looked at it in this way from the point of view of these, uh, these enslaved and coerced, uh, coerced laborers. So that's what I'm working on now. I'm, uh, right now I call it the trail the slaves made, um, but I'm sure it'll have a different title when, it, uh, when I finish it. Yeah, the Santa Fe Trail is one of those trails that's, I mean, we've all, you know, I won't say we all, but a lot of us have played that first video game, Oregon Trail. And so right. we have the Oregon Trail in our brain. And the Oregon Trail is just something, it's like a vocab word that you learn in school. Right. But Santa Fe Trail is not not well, talked about in the same way. Trail. I mean, the Oregon Trail and the California Trails and the Mormon Trail were more trails of migration. People migrated. The Santa Fe Trail was a trading trail. Um, yeah. It sent, you know, silver, Mexican silver and mules to Missouri and sent manufactured products, cloth, shoes uh, from the Eastern United States down into New Mexico. Um, people traveled it too, and some of those people were enslaved, but it's a different kind of trail than the California or Oregon trails. Well, I really appreciate you talking with me and it's been a lot of fun and, uh, you know, I, I can't recommend your books enough for the audience and uh, it's been really great. Well, thank you for, for doing this and, you know, finding time in your work as a teacher to, you know, uh, bring more California history and Western history to light. I'm just really grateful to you. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Next time we're going to cover immigration and the gold rush. We'll see you next time.